Want to advertise your business in a cost-effective way? It's time to give podcast advertising a try. Research shows a high rate of podcast listeners made a purchase as a result of an ad they heard on a podcast. Visit podbean.com slash brands to launch a cost-effective podcast advertising campaign in minutes. That's P-O-D-B-E-A-N dot com slash brands. Gruesome. This is episode 15. I am Meg, and my co-host, Law and Order plot hole spotter Connie, is going to tell us all about Charles Starkweather and Carol Ann Fugate. You know, I like that. I am a, I, I do like my Law and Order. <laughs> okay, guys, this is the story of a tale of toxic love that we hear all too often in this podcast. Boy meets girl, boy falls for girl, boy kills for girl, girl and boy go on cross-state killing spree. This is the story of Charles Starkweather and Carol Ann Fugate. It's pretty, this is a pretty gnarly one, guys. We're going to start with Charles first because he allegedly had the biggest influence on how the situation's transpired. Charles Starkweather was born on November 24th, 1938 in Lincoln, Nebraska. He was the third of seven children. He grew up in a working class family and his parents, Guy and Helen Starkweather, were considered respectable people with very well-behaved children. Starkweather sounds like a very respectable name. Like when I hear it, yeah, like, it does. Yes, that's very, that person is fancy. Even if I'll not. be honest, while I was researching some of these names that would pop up, I'm like, wait a second, that's fake. And I would have to like, go search for the name because I'm like, there is no way that someone has that name, but they did. (laughs) Uh, Charles' father, Guy Starkweather, was a carpenter and was described as a mild-mannered man. Guy was often unemployed because he suffered from rheumatoid arthritis in his hands, and anyone who suffers from RA, you know how horrible and debilitating it can be. It's awful. And this was pre-Advil. Pre-Advil. No, it wasn't. (laughs) When did Advil Why am I every single episode I'm like and this was did they have that then i don't know <laughs> uh you just think that nothing happened until 2000 that's it's exactly like oh it right. didn't start in the 90s it didn't exist pretty much anything pre-1980 i'm just like nope it, they probably didn't have microwaves or they lived in caves <laughs> color televisions I'm so sorry. Uh, I've definitely offended someone today. Go on. <laughs> During the periods where Guy couldn't work because of his RA, his wife Helen would uh, work as a waitress to supplement the lost income. Family life-wise, Charles had a pretty normal middle-class upbringing. School is where it got tough for Charles. School is where it got tough for Charles. He was bullied mercilessly. He was bow-legged and pigeon-toed, had bright red hair and a speech impediment, so he was constantly constantly teased for being what his classmates described as a slow learner. He it was later discovered he had an IQ of about 86, which the range runs from like 90 plus. So he may have been delayed, but it wasn't like it 
wasn't too bad. Yeah. Um, he was described by his teachers as being someone who just never applied himself. But it would later be discovered like that he suffered from horrible myopia that drastically affected his vision. So what's myopia? Is, I was gonna say this is my specialty. Quick eyeball lesson. Myopia is just the the formal word, I guess, for nearsightedness. So his distance vision would have been trash until he got glasses, making it difficult to see like whatever was happening oh, in the front so of the he classroom. See. He couldn't see. Um, so let's say that his vision um was 2060. This is just like a, a fun eye lesson for all of our listeners. <laughs> so if his vision was 2060 and that's just like what I see if people come in and they have like severe like myopia, the average student, what they could see at 60 feet away, he would have to be 20 feet away. So that's just a little ophthalmology lesson for anyone who's ever wondered what the numbers mean when they say like you're 20, 20, 20, 30, 20, 40. Yep. I did not know that. Yeah. So depending how his vision was, like how bad his vision was, I can definitely see how it would affect his ability to learn. The one subject that Charles excelled in was gym. And it was like he finally had a place where he could take out all of the rage that he was feeling against anyone who was bullying him. Taking his rage out. Even though he was like pigeon-toed and bow-legged or whatever, he was just like rocking gym out. Yeah, yeah. Did that go away? Did you learn about that? So it didn't say anything about it like later in life, but the pictures that I saw of him, like he was not a horrible looking man. I didn't see a lot of videos of him walking though, so I'm not sure. And I didn't see it. As a kid, I was pigeon-toed and my mom made me do baseball so I would run, but apparently like you run you can get rid of your pigeon toadness. So that's how I got rid of mine. But by running? Yeah, like run, like running bases and running laps and stuff. Yeah. I don't picture you much of a baseball player, but um I really love baseball, but <laughs> <laughs> but um there was one time most of the time I just like pretty much sat out in outfield and like looked for dandelions. And one time it was so hot that my mom rushed me into the uh, concession stand to splash water on my face because she thought I was going to overheat and die. And that. <laughs> that's accurate <laughs> though, right? Like Charles is now in the gym taking his rage out and it kind of progressed from him taking his rage out in the gym to him taking his rage out on kids who were bullying him to just further progressing to just taking his rage out on whoever he wanted. So he went from being one of the most respectful, well-behaved teenagers to being the kid who was always in trouble. And like, I think like... I and, understand, but kind of good for him for like... Yeah. And that's like at first I was like, you know what? I can see it. Like I would hope that if my kids were getting bullied that bad, that they would stand up for themselves. So you can't... This is why you got to teach your kids to be nice because you cannot... But then you like the, you like beating crap out of people. <laughs> yeah, you, yeah, then it like, because you never know what you're going to spark. They're going to be like, oh, you know what? I really like to do this. So um, one of his friends from high school, his name was Bob Von Bush. Again, the name. He was quoted as saying, he could be the kindest person you've ever seen. He'd do anything for you if he liked you. He was a hell of a lot of fun to be around. Everything was just one big joke to him, but he had this other side. He could be mean as hell, cruel. If he saw some poor guy on the street who was bigger than him, better looking or better dressed. He just he tried to take the poor bastard down to his size. When Charles was 17, the movie Rebel Without a Cause was released and he looked at the character that James Dean played and thought, man, I really relate to this guy. I too am a misunderstood teen like everybody else did in 19 or 1955. So at this point, Charles did what many, many, many other 17 year olds did. He morphed into James Dean. He rocked the iconic slick back hair, the white shirt, the leather jacket, you know, anyone from the 50s. That's what that's like classic. Second completely off topic, but kind of on topic thing. I live in James Dean's hometown. So I see a lot of James Dean stuff. 
And so I yeah, was gonna admit, look, I was gonna mention that I was gonna talk about how you lived in James Dean hometown, but I was like, I don't know if I could say, I don't know if she wants me to like. <laughs> I don't really. That. It's fine. You can't find my house. <laughs> but it, that's a pretty. You live in a pretty gnarly town, and they have like a big festival every year. He's Lord and Savior James Dean. It's a whole thing. <laughs> Lord and Savior James Dean. That is accurate. That is pretty much how <laughs> the town feels as well. Um, so his teenage angst got the best of him. He adopted a nihilist outlook, which, you know, he ble- he believed that life was meaningless and there was no point to anything. There, everyone just existed. Man, really going downhill fast. Yeah, poor guy. Um, and you would think, what could give this poor kid's life meaning? Enter Carol and Fugate. So Charles had dropped out of school his senior year to work as a truck unloader at the Western Union newspaper warehouse, where he was described as being a poor worker who had to be told multiple times to do anything. The then 18-year-old Charles met a 13-year-old Carol through her older sister, Barbara. She was dating the previously mentioned Bob Von Bush. Times were dead. Yeah, it was. And like you when you think of five years, I don't think it's too like as you're older, like, okay, that's not a big deal. They're five years apart. But when you're like, oh, 13 and 18, then you're like, yikes. Yeah, that's that's gross. Really anything like I think 25 and under those five years. Mm sketch. Yeah, I agree. Sorry if you don't. Um, Carol Ann Fugate was born on July 30th, 1943 in Lincoln, Nebraska to William Fugate and Velda M. Bartlett. She had two sisters, the previously mentioned Barbara, and a two-year-old half-sister by the name of Betty Jean. Her parents were divorced and her mother had remarried a man by the name of Marion. And honestly, there isn't much known about like her early childhood. Um, she was noted at, other than her having like a rebellious spirit. So that's quite the description. She's a sassy little thing. Yep. Which same. I can feel that. So Charles' job was located near the, which this is what makes it sound even the five years sounds worse than what it is. His job was located near the Whittier Junior High School where Carol was a student. So like she was in junior high when they met. He visited her every day after school. They soon began spending lots of time together. He even was teaching her how to drive. One day Carol was driving his car and she got into a wreck, but it was the car was in his dad's name. So his dad had to pay for the damages. So his dad, rightfully so, was mad. Obviously, he tore into Charles about the car, about his relationship with Carol, about how he didn't like where his life was heading. So he did what any hot-headed 18-year-old would do. He moved out. He moved out. Of course he Yep. So he quit his job at the warehouse and began working as a trash collector for minimum wage. Fun fact, not related to the case itself, but just a little tidbit about his life. Um, He, the television host, Dick Cavett, uh, I don't know if you know who that is. He had like this long running daytime talk show. It's like he's like renowned as like one of the best talk show hosts ever. He lit Dick Cavett and his family lived like when he was younger, lived on the route that Charles had. So yeah, a little small world. What was the minimum wage in in that time that he was working for? Was it like a dollar? 1955, the minimum wage was a dollar an hour. Woo! Making that yeah. big money. Eight hours of work. Eight For eight dollars. Uh, Doesn't that sound? That's insane. Sounds like a fair wage to me. That's probably how much they would still pay us if 
were allowed yep. to. If they had their choice. They, the government, <laughs> the big people. You, you know who we're talking about. These guys. Um, so as he's riding around town doing his route on the back of the garbage truck, he just sat there and stewed. He began to think that life was miserable. There's no point. Like the poverty that he was experiencing was as good as life was going to get for him. And he started to think, you know, crime is the only way. And so he started to plot bank robberies while he was just cruising around on the garbage truck. I don't and, really blame him. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I feel that. And he coined his own personal philosophy during his, his self-reflection that dead people are all on the same level. So you can see kind under. of where... Yeah, they sure are. Yeah. So I think we can agree as parents of daughters that Charles was everything, literally everything you wouldn't want in a person that your daughter uh, was dating. Yeah, no, I would be like, eh, not, not today, friend. All right. So here's where it get, it's starting to get crazy. Uh, November 30th, 1957, Charles went into a service station in Lincoln, Nebraska, where he tried to purchase a stuffed toy dog for Carol on credit because he didn't have any money. Robert Culver, he was the 21-year-old gas station attendant. He refused to accept credit. And so Charles left and he was pissed. He returned many times throughout the day to buy little things and piss with Robert. But he finally came back that late that night with a shotgun and he demanded that Robert give him $100 for the cash register. And then he forced Robert to get into the car with him, drove him to a remote area where Robert tried to fight like hell to get away. But Charles ultimately shot Robert in the head. Jeez Louise. Yeah. Over which back then $100 is a lot of money. Yeah. Yeah, Over a Robert would be the first of 11 victims for Charles. Dang. So he didn't get busted for this gas station attendant. No. He would later say that like Afterwards, he believed he had transcended his former self to reach a new place of existence in which he was above the law. <laughs> okay. Yeah. It's like, nope, that's not how that works. But he confessed the robbery to Carol. And I'm going to say this a lot. There's two sides to all of this. Because if you lean towards Charles, where Carol knows what he does, assists in what he does, you have one opinion. And if you believe her, oh, no, I never had any idea of what was going on. You'll have a second opinion. And oh, I'm so anxious she's to hear. She's a 13 year old girl. Well, at this point, she's 14. So, okay. well, she's I mean, a 14 year old girl. <laughs> yeah, very impressionable. So, I do give her a pass for that. But I'm anxious to hear in the comments, like afterwards, like on our Instagram, what people think about this case. So, a month or so goes by. He's saying that Carol knew that he did this. Um, she later said that she had nothing to do with this. She did admit to spending some of the money that he had gotten from this robbery so you know take it take with what you will from that (laughs) on january 21st 1958 charles went to carol's house to pick her up and her mom velda was like heck no we don't want you around our daughter like you can't be here you need to leave you we don't want you around her. And side note, Carol wasn't even there. She was not home at the time. But because again, he had every trait that you wouldn't want around your daughter. Like he didn't handle this very well. And I'm going to give a trigger warning because this is pretty rough. Charles barged into the house where after an altercation, he shot both her mother and stepfather with his shotgun. And then again, trigger warning, he strangled her two-year-old sister, Betty Jean, and stabbed her in the neck. Oh my God. Yeah. 
And like I said, Carol wasn't even home at this time. So she returns home. There's this bloodbath. And again, what happens afterwards really depends on which side you're kind of taking from this. Charles says that Carol helped him hide the bodies behind the house, hung out in the house with him for six days, taped a note on the door for everyone to see that was like, hey, go away. We all have the flu in here. But Carol says she has no idea. Like she never had any idea that her family had been murdered. He kidnapped her, told her that if he she went with him, like everyone would be safe but if she didn't go with them then they would be he would kill them oh geez so i mean you're right because like you don't want to like victim shame if this did happen Mm -hmm. to her but what gets me and where i'm like okay maybe maybe charles was correct because the bodies were found in the back of the house and the reason this manhunt ensued was because carol's grandmother saw the note and she she got really suspicious by the note she contacted the lincoln police department and when they arrived on january 27th so it was six days later charles and carol fled the house in his car. Okay. And they were like, well, see you later. Yep. The two set out on a murder spree that is still considered the most notorious set of murders in the history of Nebraska. And if we have any listeners from Nebraska, I'm going to need you guys to let me know if these two are as notorious as everything that I read. Yeah, like because let's talk about it. Yeah, because we hadn't. This is a pretty gnarly case, and Meg and I hadn't heard of it before. Yeah, I had no idea. So, when you told me so, we were doing this case, I was like, "Ooh, what?" Yeah. So first, Charles and Carol fled to the home of August Meyer, and this is January twenty seventh, nineteen fifty eight. He was a seventy year old family friend of Carol's family who lived in Bennett, Nebraska. Charles shot and killed August. And even killed his dog. Aww. And honest, yeah, I'm not sure why they chose to go to his house. I read that he lived on a farm, so I'm not sure if they wanted to hide out there or if it was like a short-term or long-term thing or if they were just like looking for a place to clean up. They didn't stay long at all because later that day, they ditched Charles' car in mud, abandoned it, and they were hitchhiking down the road when Robert Jensen and Carol King, two local Bennett teenagers, stopped to ask if they needed a ride. Robert Jensen was described by friends as a cheerful boy who loved the sound of laughter and practical jokes. And Carol King was a cheerleader who was described as being pretty, smart, and kind. He was 17 and Carol was 16. And it's confusing because there's two Carols. So sorry about that. I just like, why would you ditch your, I mean, they might be looking for your car, but why would you Mm -hmm. hitchhike? Like they're, I don't know. That's just seems Because I think in 1958, obviously there wasn't the technology that we have today to put out, be like, hey, Bolo, look out for these people. It wasn't as easy as that. Yeah, I guess that's true. And just to break your heart a little bit more, because I'm sure you know where the situation is going, but they were high school sweethearts who everyone just assumed that they were going to grow up and get married and live happily ever after, which is like, oh, poor little couple. I know. So what is he do to him? What did they do? So quick, quickly after giving Charles and Carol a ride, Charles forced them to drive to an abandoned storm shelter in Bennett where he shot Robert in the back of the head with a shotgun. And yeah, he attempted to rape Carol King, but was unable to do so. I'm not sure why he was unable to do so, but it was not. It He did not accomplish. Also, you're just going to rape other Carol in front of your you're you're a yeah. like yeah. this guy's going nuts fast yeah like spiraling he, be- he became angry and shot her as well but again two sides of the story he later admits that he shot robert he's like yeah i did i did shoot 
Robert Jensen, but he maintains that Carol shot Carol King. Sorry, no, that's confusing. Carol shot. And Carol. yeah, and but Carol maintains that she stayed in the car, was simply there out of fear, had no idea what was going on, didn't want to be a part of anything. But I go back to I I would have left. Like if you're in a car by yourself and he's away doing these things. Yeah, like bail. Yeah, but also but, you're probably scared because yeah. you're a little kid and yeah. So it's like it goes back and forth, and I hate that. There's no clear cut answer. Uh, Charles. Carol stole Robert's car and they fled the area and they were literally just looking for a car. There was no rhyme or reason. Robert and Carol King were just in the wrong place at the extremely wrong time. They were trying to be helpful, but they had no idea that like they were picking up a monster. Well, maybe two monsters. It depends on your conclusion to the case. At this point, they make their way to a wealthy area in Lincoln, Nebraska. So at this point, they're back in their hometown. They enter the home of wealthy industrialist Lauer Ward and his wife, Clara. They were met inside by their maid, Lillian Fensel. Charles stabbed Lillian to death and the pair waited for Mr. and Mrs. Ward to come home. He would late, Charles would later say he broke their dog's neck so that he, what the is dog would not. What killing their dogs? Yeah, that's like definitely a You're psychopath. You're a psychopath, yeah. For sure. Um, but he, he didn't want the dog to alert the wards when they came home. Clara arrived first because they were... They, they weren't together. She was found with multiple stab wounds, although Charles maintains he threw a knife at her and the remaining stab wounds were the result of Carol stabbing her numerous times. When Lauer Ward returned home that evening, Charles shot him and they fled their home in a 1956 Packard with stolen jewelry from the house. And they were, they decided they were leaving Nebraska and they were going to Charles' brother's house in Washington State. So they're like, all right, we're done with this. We're going to flee. We're going to live happily ever after in Washington State. <laughs> I like how that's their thought after they just murdered, like, yeah, like it's no, like it's like, nah, not a big deal. We're Gonna go we're to gonna Washington. Make it. Let's get out of here. But like these were high-profile members of the community, so they this is like a big deal. Local agencies from the area sent their law enforcement officers to go door to door looking for uh, Charles and Carol. The governor at the time, his name was Victor Emanuel Anderson. He contacted the Nebraska National Guard to assist in the search. The Lincoln law enforcement were ridiculed for their inability to capture the two of them because there were tons of sightings of them around town. Like it's, they weren't being very coy. They were just like, oh, let's go. Yeah, because and they, they're children. Yeah. So they're thinking they're home free on their way out west to live their lives. They quickly were like, oh crap, this is a very distinct car. Everyone's looking for it. We need to ditch this car. So yeah, Packard, they see, that's like a big boy, right? You're correct. It is a very large fancy car. It's a very fancy car. It's like the typical what you think of back in the day. <laughs> yeah. In days. So they're like, all right, we got to get rid of this car. They're driving down the road. They see a car pulled over to the side of the road. So they pull over. They see Merle Collision sleeping in his Buick along the highway outside of it's Douglas, Wyoming. Who? What's his name? Merle Collision. Merle I told Collision? you. Yeah, you think you're like, wait a second. These names don't exist. <laughs> it's true. But they did make it to Wyoming. So they were they were going. They were booking it. Uh, Merle was a shoe salesman who was just taking a nap. They woke him up, shot him. And again, it depends on who you ask. Charles says that Carol, he says that his gun jammed. So Carol performed a coupe de grace, which is just apparently a fancy word of saying that she fired the final fatal shot when his gun jammed. So, so he said like she is killing these people with him. And she, yeah, he, I well, would he never. said, he says that she is the most trigger happy person he has ever met. And that he that she enjoyed it. Well, honestly, he kind of sounds like the most trigger happy 
coffee person that yeah i know it's like pot meat meat kettle (laughs) yeah and like obvious no surprise here carol stuck with her story that she never pulled the trigger she never participated in any of this this whole murder spree so they try to steal his car but charles had never driven a car that had a push pedal parking brake so when he went to start to drive it like he started it the car stalled because the parking brake hadn't been released (laughs) yeah hilarious so engine stalls and he's trying to start it again again this is back in the day where everyone helps everybody apparently so a passing motorist by the name of joe sprinkle pulls over to help and you know he realized they were having trouble so he pulls over to help he's like hey man what's going on and they're still in this like big packard right no no they're at this point they are in uh moral collisions car because that's the car yeah so charles gets out of the car threatens joe with his rifle which and that guy's like whoa man i was just trying to help i'm just trying to help and then what comes next is the moment that i'm sure Joe Sprinkle considers the luckiest moment of his life, the type of moment that makes you change any negative energy or any negative habits because a Natrona County Sheriff's deputy pulled up at that very same moment. So he sees this altercation. He pulls over. The deputy's name was William Rover. Again, very wholesome names. All these names (laughs) sound like they come from a storybook. And again, it depends who you, if you believe Carol was an innocent bystander or a trigger happy accomplice because she ran out of the car to the deputy saying it's stark whether he just shot a man he's going to kill me so if you're someone who believes like yeah she was an innocent bystander you see that this is she finally had her shot at getting away and so she finally took it or maybe you think that she did have more to do with it and she's you know more conniving than she leads on and she's thinking like oh yeah this is not gonna end well we're busted i'm gonna (laughs) i have to save my own ass at this point so charles hops in the packard and a huge police chase ensues he was chased by three officers with speeds exceeding 100 miles per hour, which in 1958, that's a lot. Yeah, those cars are huge. Do you know how much it takes to get them to 100 miles an hour? It's intense. So Sheriff Earl Heflin shot out the back of the windshield. And when the flying glass cut Charles deep enough to make him bleed, he stopped and surrendered because he thought he was bleeding to death. Oh my God. He wasn't. It was like super, yeah, it was superficial wounds. So uh, Sheriff Heflin was like, he thought he was bleeding to death. That's why he stopped. That's the kind of yellow son of a bitch he is. So he's like, yeah, he's a coward. So that's <laughs> why he bring stopped. Back calling people yellow as like a coward. Like, yeah, you're a yellow little fella. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't mean to make that rhyme, but I did it. I like it. I dig it. Yellow fella. You're a little yellow fella. So obviously both of them are arrested. And at first Charles agreed with Carol. Like he was like, no, she had nothing to do with any of these murders. Um, I kidnapped her. But he realized that Carol was also saying that he kidnapped her. <laughs> He's like, now, wait a minute. No, I was being generous. So he changed his story many times. He finally testified at her trial that she was a willing participant. Now, and probably besides the 11 murders that he committed or partially committed, the next thing is probably the biggest mistake Charles ever made because he chose to be extradited from Wyoming to Nebraska because he was like, you know what? No matter where I go, I'm going to be executed. I'm going to go back to my home state. But what he didn't know because he's not from Wyoming, the governor of Wyoming at the time opposed the death penalty. Oh, dang. Yeah. So he he made a huge mistake. But like, did he want to die or did he not want to die? He just assumed that either state would execute him. So he wanted to be executed in Nebraska, like his home. Uh-huh. Yeah. So and I'm not sure why, but he was only tried for the murder of Robert Jensen. What? 
What? Yeah. It showed all of his murders. So he was only tried for the one. So I don't know. And I'll get to it. I think I don't know if they were the plan was to do it individually. Like, you know, each murder had a different case or a different trial. But he pled not guilty by reason of insanity. But the jury was like, yeah, no, we don't buy that. And he was found guilty and sentenced to death. All of this happens within four months. So four months from the time he murdered Carol's family, within four months, his trial passes and he's sentenced to death. Oh, dang, that is. Yeah, it was quick. They didn't they didn't mess around. In a letter he wrote to his dad, he said, but dad, I'm not real sorry for what I did, because for the first time, me and Carol have more fun. So I don't know. But he he was. Yeah, he was an asshole, like all the way up to the end, because he was asked to donate his eyes after death. And he was like, nobody ever did anything for me when I was alive. Why should I help anybody when I'm dead? Also, like his eyes didn't work that well. So why? That's true. (laughs) When you donate eyes, it's the cornea that you're getting. It's not the whole eye. Oh, interesting. So many things I'm learning about eyeballs. It's like a it's like a murder lesson and an eyeball lesson all in one episode. We, you know, double duty over here. (laughs) He was executed by electric chair on June 25th, 1959 at 1201 a.m. Another random fact about this execution is the doctor who was supposed to pronounce him dead suffered his own fatal heart attack minutes before the execution. What? Like in the hospital? Well, in the prison. So he had a yeah. heart attack in the prison before he was supposed to execute? Yeah. Whoa. Again, it's just kind of weird. So, Miss Carol. Carol has always stuck by her story that she was held hostage, had no idea her family had been murdered, never murdered anyone, never touched a trigger. But the judge on the case, Judge Harry A. Spencer, was like, no, I don't believe that. I don't believe you were held hostage by Charles. You had new numerous opportunities to escape. Charles came in and said all the opportunities that she had to escape and he testified against her. And I think that was kind of like the final, like that didn't help. Obviously that didn't help her case at all, but I think that was like the final nail in her coffin. When he first got taken to prison after his trial, he said that he believed he was supposed to die and he understands that. But if he was to be executed, then Carol should have been executed too, which she's 14. Yeah. (laughs) Even if it was now, she wouldn't have been executed. No. On November 21st, 1958, Carol was found guilty of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison. She was the youngest person ever at the time to be convicted of first-degree murder. What? She was... So the youngest person to ever be convicted of first-degree murder is 13. And that was in 2001. So, you know, literally splitting hairs in the difference of ages. Yeah. And that... She held the record for quite some time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, She was not sentenced to death. She was sentenced to life in prison. Like I said, she was the youngest ever convicted. She was described as a model prisoner. And in 1976, after being in prison for 17 years, she was paroled. Whoa. Yeah. After she was released, she moved to Michigan with a couple who she had befriended. They saw an episode about her on TV. They were like, oh man, she's, she seems like she needs help. So they started writing her. Carol went to live with them after she got out of prison. Um, she worked as a medical technician a janitorial assistant, a nanny at one point. She, in 2007, she married Frederick Clare. He's a machinist and weather observer for the National Weather Service. They've moved to Stryker, Ohio. Sadly, in 2013, she was in a serious car crash that claimed the life of her husband. She goes by her married name, Carol Ann Clare. And Recently, as in February of 2020, she had appealed to be like part, she wanted to be pardoned for her crimes. Like she had submitted to the pardon board. Oh, okay. And she had 
she even had four letters from family members of her victim who were like, no, we don't think she had a part in this. But they still, they denied her pardon without hearing any comment. <laughs> yeah, they were like, nah, no. And they were I mean, like, this is not what this she's is like, for. probably nearing the end of her life anyways. I understand that she yeah. has, like her name cleared, but she probably doesn't need it cleared for like to be able to work yeah. or to do anything. Yeah. Um. Some other interesting tidbits about this case. The 1973 movie starring Martin Sheen, Badlands. That's based on this uh, Charles and Carol, their reign of terror. The cult classic Natural Boring Killers with Woody Harrelson and Juliette Lewis based on this case. Oh, really? I uh, thought it was just like a Bonnie and Clyde kind of thing, but I guess yeah, this. It is. It's like this is also, it, which is, it, it's crazy. Martin Sheen paid for the headstone that was put on Charles' grave because he didn't have one. So Martin Sheen's the one that paid for it. What? Yeah. That is a weird tidbit. Bruce Springsteen's song, Nebraska, is supposed to be a first-person narrative of the crime. And Billy Joel mentions Charles in his song, We Didn't Start the Fire. I think it just says his last name. Dark weather homicide. We didn't start the fire. of the so yeah this is and i guess there's like plenty there's like tons of other movies that are like loosely based kind of interesting yeah so many like pop culture references and yet we had never actually heard about it which we're gonna give this i'm gonna we're gonna release this episode and people are gonna be like oh yeah you guys are idiots everybody knows this case (laughs) i hope sorry at the beginning um you said that it was toxic love and this entire time i don't know if you've ever seen fern gully but uh hex sings toxic love in it and i've been singing it in my head Tim Curtis, like, this entire time see you think that and i think britney spears toxic because <laughs> i was jamming that when i was writing this episode i was like i'm not gonna sing it because that's not my style <laughs> like I, i'm not good at singing but yeah i want to hear what people think if they i mean i do think she was a victim of her age she was very easily like yeah, she was, like, she was a very impressionable, impressionable age. But who knows? Maybe she did have more to do with it than she says. I mean, honestly, I would never, even if I did have something, I would not. Or maybe this is not she the time didn't do anything. It was like forced, or she was just trying to like protect. Yeah, herself. Like, I could see that happening. Like just doing it so that he didn't like turn on her. Yeah, and I, I don't believe that she didn't know her family was murdered. Yeah, that no part way. I'm like, nah, I don't, I don't believe that part. I do think that most of this was him like absolutely but uh it's a rough one it's not the most gruesome it's more like thrilling it's a a thriller thriller hot jinx (laughs) but yeah let us know what you guys think i'm gonna post pictures of all of this stuff there's tons of them even her like as an adult living her life now and how yeah when she got out of jail she was 33 when she got out nice (laughs) <laughs> yeah, so she still had a long <laughs> life. I mean, she's still alive. So, but yeah, that's yeah, interesting. I figured I'd give a break from like trauma. I mean, it was traumatizing, <laughs> but not like gonna not, keep you up at night with the gory details. Yeah, not uh, not we're not cutting stomachs open to steal babies or anything in this one. Ugh. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. But we'll be back next time. Again, follow us on social media. If you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. Uh, the more reviews we have, that's how other people find our podcast and we want other people to love us too tell your friends that's it for today thank you all so much for listening to gruesome true crime with me connie and meg we appreciate every single one of you we truly do if you actually like us and you're not just trying to seduce and murder us you can follow along or see extras from the show on our instagram at gruesome podcast 
Or if you want to tell us our skin would make a nice lampshade, or if you have follow-up questions about the episode, follow the form on our website, gruesomepodcast.com, and email us. We love hearing from you guys. You can listen to Gruesome at the links listed on that website, or you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever else you normally get your podcast fill. Thank you again. Be sure to subscribe. Check your back seat before you get into your car. And remember that on Wednesdays, we're we're gruesome. gruesome. Bye. Bye.